Today's passage comes from the book of Jeremiah, chapter 25, verses 15 through 32. You can follow along on page 8 in your worship bulletin. Before we read the passage, though, let's take a moment for a prayer for illumination. Great God, prepare our hearts to accept your word. Silence us in any voices but your own so that we may hear your word and also do it through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. For thus the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me, Take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. They shall drink and stagger and go out of their minds because of the sword that I am sending among them. So I took the cup from the Lord's hand and made all the nations to whom the Lord sent me drink it. Jerusalem and the towns of Judah, its kings and officials, to make them a desolation and a waste, an object of hissing and of cursing as they are today. Pharaoh, king of Egypt, his servants, his officials, and all his people. All the mixed people, all the kings of the land of Uz, all the kings of the land of the Philistines, Ashkelon, Gaza, Ekron, and the remnant of Ashdod, Edom, Moab, and the Ammonites, all the kings of Tyre, all the kings of Sidon, and the kings of the coastland across the sea, Dedan, Tama, Buzz, and all who have shaven temples, all the kings of Arabia, and all the kings of the mixed peoples that live in the desert, all the kings of Zimri, all the kings of Elam, and all the kings of Media, all the kings of the north, far and near, one after another, and all the kingdoms of the world that are on the face of the earth, and after them, the king of Shishak shall drink. Then you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Drink, get drunk and vomit, fall and rise no more, because of the sword that I am sending among you. And if they refuse to accept the cup from your hand to drink, then you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord of hosts, You must drink. See, I am beginning to bring disaster on the city that is called by my name. And how can you possibly avoid punishment? You shall not go unpunished, for I am summoning a sword against all the inhabitants of the earth, says the Lord of hosts. You, therefore, shall prophesy against them all these words and say to them, The Lord will roar from on high and from his holy habitation utter his voice. He will roar mighty, mightily against his fold and shout like those who tread grapes against all the inhabitants of the earth. The clamor will resound to the ends of the earth, for the Lord has an indictment against the nations. He is entering into judgment with all flesh, and the guilty he will put to the sword, says the Lord." Thus says the Lord of hosts, See, disaster is spreading from nation to nation, and a great tempest is stirring from the farthest parts of the earth. The word of the Lord. 
Well, I can certainly say, I can certainly tell this is not an Episcopal church. No Episcopal church would ever read that passage from Jeremiah on a Sunday morning, not in a million years, let alone say thanks be to God. <laughs> Whatever else we may say about the Bible, it is not squeamish. Drink, be drunk, and vomit. Rise and fall no more because of the sword which I am sending among you. What sort of God talks like that? The Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, that's who. Now obviously you here at Geneva Church not only have a greater tolerance for snow and ice and driving conditions than most people, but you also have a higher tolerance for disturbing biblical passages than most congregations. Good for you. John Keats coined a phrase, negative capability. Instead of saying glib things like everything happens for a reason, every serious Christian should cultivate negative capability. The capacity for entertaining contrary ideas and unpleasant realities without reaching for an easy or evasive answer. Jim Kirk has been delivering five fine sermons on Jeremiah for several weeks now. I've read two of them. So I don't have to worry so much about what you may be thinking. Still, it's notable that our culture, which has become so coarse and so vulgar in so many ways, is actually quite soft and easily offended. We want safe spaces and trigger warnings. I'm a fan up to a point of the much maligned Puritans. They were robust and realistic about life. They weren't in the least sentimental about human nature as we are. They were not intoxicated by the triumph of the human spirit. They recognized sin not only in others, but also and especially in themselves. In our cultural passion for tolerance and inclusion, we have failed to account for the dark underside of every person and every society. To be judgmental is the worst of all sins today. Therefore, we find it intolerable to think of God as the judge of all things. And yet this is one of the central teachings about God in the Old and New Testaments alike. There will be a divine reckoning one of my favorite movie utterances of all time was in the definitive O.K. Corral movie, Tombstone. Putting in a little plug here, Val Kilmer as Doc, Doc Holliday is one of the most unforgettable film performances ever for my money. At one point, speaking of the actions of another character, Doc says, make no mistake, it's not revenge he's after, it's a reckoning. Needless to say, he's not talking about God, but he could be. The God of the Bible is not revengeful, but that doesn't mean that there won't be a reckoning for all the godlessness that has kept the human race in perpetual danger of self-destruction. A reckoning. 
There's a story in my family that's been circulating for some 50 years. Our favorite New England cousin had a daughter who was to be married. She had been raised as an Episcopalian and was planning an Episcopal church wedding, but she, was invite, she had invited her paternal grandfather to participate in the service, and he was a minister in the congregational church. At an appointed time and before the wedding day, my cousin and her grandfather, whom she called Pear, I don't know why they weren't French, but anyway, she called him Pear, and they sat down together to go over the service from the 1928 Episcopal Book of Common Prayer. Now, Pear, you understand, was a Congregationalist of the liberal Harvard variety. So they got to the place where the minister is supposed to say, I require and charge you both, as you will answer at the dreadful day of judgment, when the secrets of all hearts shall be disclosed. Well, said the grandfather, you certainly don't want that. We'll just leave that part out. <laughs> but pair, exclaimed the bride-to-be, I love the dreadful day of judgment. I believe that if we can understand loving the dreadful day of judgment, we come very close to the heart of Christian faith. Here is the basic underlying gospel truth. God will save his people from judgment, but he will not save us without judgment, without a reckoning. In our passage today, we read, Thus the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me, Jeremiah, take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. They shall drink and stagger and be crazed because of the sword which I am sending among them. In the America first atmosphere of today, it's a little creepy to think of the cup of God's wrath being distributed to all the other nations. To hell with our enemies, to hell with our allies, as long as we're okay. But that is not the way that Jeremiah is told to distribute the cup of wrath. I don't know if you noticed or not, but the first nation to drink is going to be Israel itself, God's chosen people. And in fact, not only is that the case, but they get their own special reckoning at more length than any other of the nations. So I took this cup from the Lord's hand and made all the nations to whom the Lord sent me to drink it, Jerusalem and the cities of Judah, its kings and princes, to make them a desolation and a waste a hissing and a curse as in this day. This immediately reminds us of a passage in the New Testament from the first letter of Peter. The time has come for judgment to begin with the household of God. That passage and the passage from Jeremiah perfectly complement one another. The time has come for judgment to begin with the household of God. That's you and me. 
Now the reason I think, one reason anyway, that the subject of sin and judgment is a difficult topic for us today is that we tend to think of sin as individual offenses, which leads, us to, which leads to individuals being judged one by one. And in our tender-minded culture, this is considered intolerant and bigoted. So the best way I know to begin thinking about the subject of sin and judgment is to lift our sights beyond individuals to the condition of society and the world at large. If we keep thinking of sin as individual transgressions, we won't get the full picture. Sin is not a little slippage here and a small lapse there in our daily dealings. Sin, with a capital S, is a colossal power with a capital P, with one mission, to subvert and to undo God's good purposes. Quite a few Pauline scholars, scholars of Paul's letters, have begun capitalizing sin, death, and power because Paul speaks of them as powerful entities at work in the world. Sin and death are powers. Sin with a capital S has this one mission to undo the good that God does. Paul teaches us in Romans 5 and 7 that sin, capital S, came into the world as a result of human rebellion against the goodness of God. And we are entangled in sin with no power of ourselves to help ourselves. Good intentions are all very well, but we all know the truth of the modern proverb, no good deed goes unpunished. There's an evil intelligence at work in the world to undo our best efforts. One of the most dramatic examples of this in our present time is what has happened to Facebook. And by the way, my granddaughter's future husband works for Facebook, so I'm not pointing any specific fingers here. We're all in this together. The situation with Facebook is described in a new book about Mark Zuckerberg and his dream of a world and all its people connected, one big happy family. This book, if you'll excuse me, is entitled Zucked. <laughs> Facebook has turned out to be a force multiplier for lies, conspiracy, and hate. An article in Friday's Good New York Times tells of a police inspector in a German city, I can't pronounce the name of it, who has a team working overtime to head off rumors that are inflaming passions against refugees and migrants. A local mayor has already been shot because of his sympathy for migrants. Facebook is the chief suspect spinning out violence and extremism. Facebook's algorithms know how to seek out people to keep them engaged in using Facebook. The police inspector is a hero of sorts. 
He and his team are going door to door, literally door to door, to convince Facebook users that the rumors are not true. The police inspector is furious at Zuckerberg and his creation, a $500 billion company that leaves overworked police departments to manage the risks created by its platform. Facebook, you see, has become one of the powers and principalities. It has become an instrument of the great adversary of God. This should not surprise us. We were warned by Jesus himself who told us, I have told you all things beforehand. There is an agency at work. This is the New Testament scenario. There is an agency at work, independent of ourselves, that bores its way into every aspect of human life to defeat our best intentions. This evil agency is sometimes called Satan or the devil to indicate its status as a personal intelligence. In the Gospel of John, as you know, Jesus refers to Satan as the ruler of this world and the evil one. In Ephesians, it is called, Satan is called the prince of the power of the air. The world as we know it is held in the grip of this evil agency called by Paul the power of sin and death. We have never known any other world except this. Because of the working of these powers through human beings, the destruction of the world is more likely to occur through human beings than by a direct act of God. I think this preoccupation with dystopia that we are seeing in recent films and television movies, are, those are, that's an anxious sign of our frame of mind and what is going on among us. In the Christopher Nolan movie called Interstellar, the planet is in such bad shape that we have to travel into space to find a new planet where, of course, everything will start all over again. This seems to be an endlessly absorbing and entertaining concept, but our fascination for it arises largely out of our anxiety. We don't need God in order to destroy the earth. What we need is for God to keep us from destroying the earth. The trees that praise the Lord. The cedars of Lebanon are dying from pollution. Therefore, if there is ever going to be justice in the universe, lasting, perfect justice, the judge has to come from outside the reign of sin, from outside the dominion of the ruler of this world, you see. God will save his people from judgment, but he will not save us without judgment. If there is no judgment, the universe is without meaning. Ernest Hemingway wrote in The Sun Also Rises, given the chance, Everyone behaves badly. Conditions of impunity 
such as Facebook enjoys. Always open up a space for the rule of sin in human life. The human life, excuse me, the human situation calls out for judgment, calls out for a reckoning. But more than that, it calls out for a final reversal and obliteration of all the suffering. That's precisely what human judgment cannot deliver. We can repent, confess, apologize. We can say definitively, this was wrong, this is wicked, this is evil. But what we cannot do is make it right. The coming day of the Lord, judgment day, is about the restoration of all things so that even the memory of evil will be obliterated. Miroslav Wolf, a well-known theologian now at Yale, survived intense psychological abuse in his native Croatia. He knows something about sin and judgment. He wrote a book with the suggestive title, The End of Memory, in which he writes, the last judgment is a social event. It happens not simply to individuals, but between people. Human beings do wrong to each other and rightfully have cases against each other. At the last judgment, God will settle all these cases, which involve all offenses against God, too, since any wrongdoing against a neighbor is also an offense against God. Ultimately, God will right all wrongs. And I would add to what just to what um, Miroslav Wolf wrote that this statement that ultimately God will right all wrongs is the ultimate meaning of Paul's favorite word, justification. God will right all wrongs, including the justification of the ungodly. In Jesus Christ, God invaded the territory held by the prince of darkness. The definitive closure of the, the definitive closure of this cosmic invasion, the V-Day to its D-Day, will be the final day of God. On that last day, there will be only one ruler, only one Lord, only one king of all the universe. Scripture is quite clear and unambiguous about that. The judge of all the cosmos will not be Satan. Radical evil will have no status in the day of judgment, the day of final reconciliation. Death shall have no more dominion. The victory of our Lord and of his Christ will be the absence of evil forever and ever. 
This is the theme that biblical interpreters call Christus Victor, Christ the Conqueror. The biblical proclamation is that in the cross of Jesus Christ, God has judged the creation and saved it in one mighty act. For our sake, Paul wrote, God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That is the justification of the ungodly. Jesus Christ in his abandonment and his terrible, terrible, ghastly death became sin. The central truth about God in Christ is that somehow the sinless one exchanged places with us. He became the judge judged in our place. In his crucifixion, the Son of God became sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Which would you rather have? The righteousness of God or your own righteousness? Can there be any other answer to that question than the righteousness of God? In our baptism, in your baptism into the death of Christ, Paul teaches that we are taken up by baptism into the righteousness of God by faith in Jesus Christ. What is God going to do about sin? In the cross of Christ, God has already done it. He is doing it now. People like that police inspector are doing his work on earth against the powers and principalities. God will complete his work on the day of his coming again. We believe that he shall come to be our judge. And in that coming is our salvation. Let us pray. Lord Jesus Christ, judged in our place, coming to be our judge, we thank you, glorify you, praise you and honor you for saving us from ourselves. Yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Strengthen us, O oh Lord, in this faith, and strengthen this congregation and its ministers and all who serve in this church in Madison to proclaim this gospel in word and in deed until the day 
when you return. In your precious name, Jesus Christ, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we place our trust. Amen.